Hi, Jason. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Here we are. We didn't go through how we were going to, you know, kick ourselves off. Welcome back. Should we do that time. now? It has been a long time. Sure. But this is a, a sad, I'd say, sad headspace that we're in. Is that a bad way to start? No, I don't think that's it. I think that's accurate. Yeah. It's, you know, for the, you know, in a hundred years when people are listening back to this, just to like set the context, it's 2020, it's July of 2020, the year that just kept getting weirder all the time. We're all in, we're in pandemic times. There's a lot of protests going on, justifiable protests, long needed protests, and things are happening because of the protests that are good and that's kind of the hopeful part of it mm-hmm. but it's the fact that here we here we are here people are needing to protest something that's been wrong and terrible for a very very long time and that i think the the sadness comes out of like you know people had to die for us to like get galvanized mm-hmm. not black people they've been galvanized for ages People had to die for white people to start caring mm-hmm. enough to join in. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I know That's there's the, a lot of where we are. people talking about what makes this time different. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't think we're going to spend very much time talking about that at all. Um, but it will be a different format than usual. Like our standard format is Sarah and I like to take an issue that we disagree about and then discuss it until we agree about it. Um, and that's always fun. And usually I think I repre- I do my best to represent a doubter of some nature or a skeptic or a tough, tougher case maybe than I actually am uh, to, you know, hopefully represent well people who don't agree perhaps as much as I, Jason, actually agree. Um, I think I do that pretty well, but like I'm you know, as we're departing from that format, like, it just doesn't feel like the topic of police brutality towards black people is something that is conducive to being discussed in that fashion. Because Sarah yeah. and I completely agree. There is like, if if anybody thinks this isn't happening, to me, they sound like a flat earther, you know, they're like an anti-vax yeah. person. It's just as like, I don't know what to tell you. And so we wanted to come out and say from the beginning um, that we are not experts, right? We're still learning ourselves. Um, And if you do need some proof, there's a great article, or if you remain somehow unconvinced that there is systemic racism happening throughout the entire criminal justice system not just police encounters with black people but also judges and sentencing and who gets parole prison system yeah and then violations on parole Uh, there's a great article by radley balco that's radley with an r and it's called it's in the washington post and it's called there's overwhelming evidence that the criminal justice system is racist here's the proof and it's just a collection of academic work um controlling for like crime histories and crime rates and everything because that's a frequent uh argument that doubters i guess reach for 
And they say, well, you know, there's more crimes happening in the black community, and that's why there's more police encounters there. But that's all taken into account by researchers. And still the findings hold, you know, overwhelmingly that this is pervasive in the United States criminal justice system. So we just wanted to put that to bed uh, before we get on to what we feel is the valuable things that we have to chime in to the many valuable things being said right now. Yes, and I do think it's important for us to say kind of who we're talking to right now Um, because we are two white people and I think we're kind of aware that for the most part, white people tend to talk to other white people and there's a lot of... um, just that there's a lot of kind of echo chambering of people only talking to other people who look like them or people who think like them. And so we had a conversation before we even started the podcast uh, today talking about like, well, you know, who are we talking to? What is our audience for this podcast? And I feel like black people specifically and people of color in general probably know all of the things that we're going to talk about today. We are not here to white-splain anything to anyone. What we're trying to do is what I think that white people have been asked to do by black people, by other people of color, which is to collect our own and to, to lift up the voices of black people and what they are saying and have been saying for a long time. Um, and also, for me, I think about, like, okay, everyone, we all have that friend who's like on the edge like they think that they're progressive but they say this thing or they believe this other thing and you're like how do I talk to that person like that's the person I think I could get so for me that's part of what today is about like tips for talking to your white friend who's not quite there (laughs) but you can get them there because that's our job that's our job to collect our people collecting our racist aunts and uncles and helping them to be a little bit less racist. And I think it is possible. I think uh, progress can be made because, you know, you're patient with me all the time. I think I like to, I am proud to believe that I am gettable in your eyes (laughs) for feminist issues. Um, So I, I, I like to think that, and maybe you feel this way about your own history with um, race or feminism you know, or any other type of topic that perhaps was once controversial in your mind. Um, but like people are convincible. And so I'm excited to hear your advice, Sarah. That's my point. Oh, thanks. <laughs> well, and I will also say just as you said at the beginning, like we're not experts, we're not done learning. I know that I'm not done learning. And I think that that can be helpful because I remember having the feeling, like having the kind of gut feeling when someone would say something and like my brain would say, I get it. But like, I was having a gut feeling of like, but, but I'm not like that, but I'm not bad. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I remember being that person and sometimes I probably still am that person. <laughs> and so I'm here to say that like, you can, you can learn, you can move path, through the discomfort. That's our job. Mm-hmm. It's to be uncomfortable, to move through the discomfort of looking at ourselves, recognizing our privilege, 
recognizing the harmful things that we say fully intending to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And this is where we get to that whole like intent versus impact. And this is something I feel like Jason a long time ago that we would have discussions about like the difference between intent and impact and how if the intention is, is pure, that should be enough, which I, d I don't think is true. I you can have very good intentions and not recognize that what you're saying is hurting people and you absolve yourself by saying, but that's not how I meant it without acknowledging the hurt. So intent versus impact is big. It's a big thing to kind of wrap your arms around. There are a lot of people with good intentions that are having negative impacts and that's who we're hopefully here to help. I love that. And you're totally right that at one point I couldn't tell you specifically when, but I am certain that I have taken the side of intent is all that matters. Um, and yeah, it's interesting to like think how far away I feel from that thought currently. <laughs> um, so wow, wow. Look at that. Progress. <laughs> so I wanted to start by looking at a couple of cliches that I hear a lot and I think a lot of times they come from a place where the person thinks that they are well-intentioned and they are not aware of the harmful impact they are having when they say these things especially when they say these things to black people or other people of color um, and the first one specifically has to do with this the whole issue of police brutality I hear a lot of people saying um, isn't it just a few bad apples? It's just a few bad apples. And first of all, the insufferable pedant in me wants to like push my glasses up and say, well, actually, the expression is one bad apple rots the whole barrel. So you're actually making my point when you say that. But that's not the point. That's not the point. That's not, that's not even the most harmful thing. Um, when people are saying a few bad apples, saying a few bad apples denies the reality of the lived experience of black people because it's not like we as white people in our interactions with the police we may have had nothing but helpful interactions with the police so then we hear a news story about the police killing a black person and we're like well that's what that one person and here i have had however many interactions with the police and they've all been perfectly pleasant so that, that one experience is the outlier. But that is because our privilege, my privilege as a white person, has shielded me from all of these other experiences. I would imagine that every single black person I know has at least 10 stories about unnecessarily threatening experiences that they have had with the police. And that's not, you know, and there's all of the instances that we're seeing more and more things are being caught on cell phones of police killing people and that so that's one piece and then there's all of the other like day-to-day -day interactions that black people and other people of color have with the police on a regular basis that are unnecessarily confrontational antagonistic and threatening and that is not okay. That is not a few bad apples. That is a system. And you also think about, it's, the, there's, it's a whole system where, A, 
those bad apples are given free reign to operate and are not stopped when they have when there are bad actions. There are people bystanding in the system who are allowing things to happen and are not saying anything about it. And then you know it's the system because when people have stepped up and have reported fellow officers and said this was excessive use of force, those people get punished. Mm-hmm. Those people get reassigned or fired or you know some kind of lesser assignment given to them. That's a system protecting a lot of bad apples. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but it's, it's really like, ultimately it does come down to when you say it's just a few bad apples, what you're doing is discounting the word and the experience of a lot of black people, most black people, I would say, a lot of people of color, um, and saying that your experience of the world which is that my experience with the police has been fine, trumps their experience. Mm. And that's not okay. Because you have the privileged experience, so you're not seeing all of the things that there are to see. That's the first thing. The other obvious cliche, and this one comes, I would say, not from well-intentioned people anymore. I think once upon a time, there were well-intentioned people who would go around saying all lives matter. But now... I think now enough time has passed and enough education has happened that now people who are saying all lives matter to you, to you are being aggressive. Like I've been in some protests and like that is what the counter protesters are shouting at us from the side right. is all lives matter. Right. So if you are having like the thought of all lives matter and you are a well-intentioned person, just know that's who you're siding with. It's- you're siding with the people who come to yell at Black Lives Matter protesters in opposition to them. It's a very loaded term now, or expression, yes. I guess. Yes, exactly. And the, the thing that I would say is, like, all lives should matter. All lives are supposed to matter. The reason we have to say Black Lives Matter is because our criminal justice system doesn't act like they matter. Our education system doesn't act like Black Lives Matter. Our public housing system doesn't act like Black Lives Matter. So we have to say it and we have to keep saying it until all of those systems actually act like Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Because right now they don't. They aren't acting like that. Um, and then, you know, there have been like, um, I think a lot of people have tried to kind of come up with, with good metaphors for explaining like what is damaging, what is harmful about, um, all lives matter. And like why, you know, why pointing, you know, the people who are like, but you're, you're picking out, are you saying my, is because people think like saying black lives matter means that their life doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's like whatever. That's the feeling that they're having is that, oh, if black lives matter, then you're saying my life doesn't matter. That's not what people are saying. And the metaphor that I have found helpful is that it's like uh, there is a house on fire and a person in the neighborhood and like everyone is coming to put out the fire of the house. And someone else in the neighborhood is like all houses matter. And you're like, no, but this is the house that's on fire. Mm-hmm. So we have to pay attention to this house right now. We have to pay attention to black lives right now because our 
various parts of our society and our government are not treating black lives like they matter Mm -hmm. and they do matter. And we have to keep saying that they matter and keep enacting change that will make it clear that the system understands that black lives matter. That's why we say black lives matter. That's why saying all lives matter is not helpful. All lives should matter. But the truth is the way our systems work, they do not value black lives. In many places, they do not value lives of people of color. They do not value immigrant lives. They do not value LGBTQ lives. Like there are a lot of lives that are not getting valued in various ways. And so there are a lot of people who could say, hey, if all lives matter, what about, like, what about all of the rest of us? Yeah. So all I, saying all lives matter right now is like a dog whistly kind of way of declaring your white supremacy. <laughs> I did. Uh, so know that before you say <laughs> it. I did hear an amazing interview with a black organizer, and I think they helped like cultivate the term Black Lives Matter. They were at least talking about the origination of the of the mm-hmm. idea because it's they were explaining like we're we work hard to come up with these like you know sayings or slogans or things that like distill such complex feelings and ideas and like a thousand different issues down into three words and it's like these three words you know it's like really incredible work to come up with these Mm -hmm. three words and so when somebody takes them and miss apply you know like they deliberately try to like kind of repurpose or hijack them um it's like a willfully misunderstand yeah exactly that it's like it's like sort of this intellectual property theft almost also taking place in addition to obviously being an act of disrespect to like what the words mean but I, i i don't know it was interesting to think of it as something that was arrived at you know and like when I think of it that way, I'm like, it is even more incredible to me because it really is like, this is what has to be said, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and it's valuable to hear it. It's valuable to say it. It's like, this is above all else. Like if we can just get this and repeat it at 10 million times until it's true, you know, like. I'm just, I think it's an incredible phrase. And so I just thought mm-hmm. I'd chime in with that. Oh, yeah, of course. Okay, last thing before I hand things over to Jason for a little bit. And this is maybe the most, like, insidious part of the, the good intentions that just undermine everything, which is this idea of tone policing. And what I mean when I say that is when... You will have a black person talking about how angry they are with things that are happening, how frustrated they are. And then some white person will say, I totally hear you, but if you just weren't shouting, then your message would get across better. Or if you just weren't, you know, using so much profanity in these posts that you put on Facebook, then you would reach people more. That's tone policing. That's taking the way that someone is making their argument, like stating their feelings and making it more about the kind of dressing 
of what they're saying and not really listening to the content of what they are saying. So if a person is angry about the historic injustice that has been done to them, to their communities, or about a specific like incident that has happened to them, it is in zero ways helpful for a well-meaning white person to be like, but it's the way that you're making your argument that is the problem. Because that person has not done their fundamental job, their first fundamental job of listening to what that person had to say, of taking in this has happened, like this injustice has happened, and acknowledging the fact of what the person is saying, and then and making it all about how the effect of what that person is saying has on them or has on other people. It's like, oh, I get that you're angry, but you can't scare people. You're scaring me is like the subtext of that tone police. Right. But you're scaring me or but you're making me feel uncomfortable. But you're making me feel like I've done something wrong and that's not good. Um, that's the problem with the tone policing is that you're when you're doing that, you are putting your feelings and your response to what that person is saying a, a higher in importance than the actual like content and, and facts of the experience that that person is expressing. It is so deeply unhelpful. It is so just, I just, if there's like one thing that we as white people could stop doing, I would love for it to be Stop telling black people that they would get further if they weren't so angry or they would get further if they, you know, yeah. And extra demerit points if the way that you tone please someone is by um, referencing Martin Luther King. <laughs> if, you're, if you tell someone that Martin Luther King would not have wanted them to be so angry or would not have wanted them to be violent, if you as a white person are saying anything to a black person about what Martin Luther King would think of what they are doing, you go and sit down. <laughs> you just to the lost, corner. You lost the, any, any right you had to the speaking stick. Like you just automatically, you give it up right there. Um, yeah. At, because, and the thing, then the thing that I keep saying, cause I, I, do, I definitely have heard this from people who, who I care about and who I do think are well-intentioned in their hearts who say like, Oh, it's the, but it's the shouting or it's the violence or it's the rioting. And I'm like, Whoa, 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 Whoa. First of all, we got to separate the rioting from the protesting. And there's a lot of complicated things going on. Second of all, like people are angry and they, it is definitely not our place to say you should not be angry about this and here are the legitimate ways that your anger is allowed to manifest. Because I got to say, like, being polite about things um, has not worked for 400 years. It did, there was a lot that happened because of the civil rights movement, and there is a lot of huge amounts of history of, like, kind of back and forth um, within the, the African-American community about how best to move things forward. But I have to say, like, right now, shouting is working. Sh like, all of the people 
like getting together and shouting is what is making like actually commuting, communicating how upset people are, how angry and how frustrated people are is what's working. And like PS white people, if we had the like inside line on what actually works to make change, then why have we not done it? It's amazing. yeah. So like, you know, sitting in our like high horse and being like, this is how you should do it. This is how you should protest. Is like, oh, we, if we have all of the secrets and the maps, like, why aren't we there yet? So, That's what I have to say about that. Stop tone policing. I, so. I've never heard anybody make that point that way, but I love it. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Advice not welcome, really. Um, <laughs> and I, you know... I guess if, if you're ready, I'll swing into kind of my thing yeah, here. Yeah, do it. Um, but I'm going to like sort of piggyback immediately onto what you were saying about, because I've said this before about women, and, and typically with a, it's adorable when I say it about women. Um, and I mean it, you know, with my jokey voice or whatever. But like, I always say like, you can't expect the that, you know, and this is to sort of speak to why another reason why tone policing is not appropriate, you know, because or, or like anchored in usefulness, I guess. Um, but it's like you can't expect people who have endured mistreatment for generations and were like literally got advice from grandparents on how to like navigate like the mistreatment they can expect throughout their lives to be like masters at you know like putting things out there in a way that white people prefer to hear and is like maximally effective or something do you know it's like yeah well and it also it just like puts white people as like the ultimate like arbiters of like what is correct and where the rights reside like you must convince me in a polite and well-reasoned way for me to let go of some things of yours that I'm holding on to. Like, that's not how it's supposed to be. And it's not, and even, like, doing it, even saying that, like, puts is putting yourself in that position of, like, I get to decide. Like, it's elevating yourself of, like, I get to decide how you ask me for your rights back, please. Yeah. And that it's, no, we don't get to decide that. It is like really full circle to like be having this conversation because I know in the past I've said like, look, if women want blah, 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 they need to convince men to give it to them, you know? So it's very, I don't know. I wasn't expecting it to tie in as well as it is uh, to (laughs) my own personal journey. Uh, But that being said, let me change the subject. So... I feel like the first thing I kind of want to say, and this is in the vein of, you know, we've gotten emails after we did our men's rights activists uh, episode, we got emails from men's rights activists. So um, like, and I kind of mentioned at the beginning, I try to do a good job of, I don't know, trying to bridge that, you know, people, like you said, who are like, it's under consideration, like for them, you know, we have listeners where feminism is under consideration. And I appreciate that. And I feel like that's like the open-minded folks we're hoping to have dialogue with, you know? And so, so something I wanted to say to white men who may be listening is that it's not, it, it was hard for me to, I'm like a master of white silence. I'm like, 
almost proud of how good I am at white silence. <laughs> so the first thing, you know, because I hear from you all the time, it's like, we got to listen, got to listen. So I'm like, great, I will say nothing and listen. Um, but when you read like the what, what can you do to help, like what is a good ally sort of to-do lists, one of the things you hear all the time or read all the time is like, use your voice to say, I agree. And like, use your voice to second other people's good ideas. And I kind of characterize this in my head as joining the chorus, you know? And it feels weird. It feels weird for me to be doing this podcast where I feel like usually I try to bring my unique perspective, you know, or my own <laughs> thoughts. And like, instead, I feel like the, the directive, and it makes so much sense to me that there, it, it's, and it's weird to think of my whiteness as valuable in this regard, but it's like, I have a bunch of black activists telling me that it is, you know? And so I feel like I believe you. Um, so just using your white male voice to say things that somebody else has said again, out loud and credit to them for yes, like crediting them for important. like, this is not my idea. So a lot of things I am about to say are not my idea, but that's the first one. I feel like that's my first piece of advice is to join the chorus. And it's weird. It's probably weird for you, <laughs> um, but it is welcome and important. So highly encouraged. The second thing I want to do is, you know, I mentioned this guy, Radley Balco at the beginning. I, you know, I have my strong libertarian streak, right? And I listened to this podcast and it was a debate podcast and he was on it and he was arguing, um, and it's a libertarian podcast, it's called the Soho Forum Debate Podcast. And he was debating that the system is racist and his opponent was defending the system saying, no, it isn't. And one of the things that the opponent kept coming up with, I just felt like I wanna speak to that. Um, and cause I think Radley did an amazing job. Um, but basically, he he was caught, I think, a little off guard by how out of left field this def this defense of the system was. So I'm going to throw it to you, Sarah, because I think you'll enjoy oh, it. Okay. So he made these two arguments, right? If the system is racist, then aren't the people of color who work within the system, like police officers and judges and correctional officers and probationary officers, are you calling them racist? You know, so that's the first exciting defense. And then the second one was the system attempts to respond to reform. And would a racist system do that? Like if the system were racist, why would it be so quick on its feet to answer the call of reform? <laughs> this is what this perspective was. So if... okay. I well go ahead. Yeah. I mean well, I just, you seem I definitely as would want to blindsided know by this as I was. Like what I would definitely would want to see some evidence that the system is responsive to reform. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like it is not. And in in fact there and now I'm this is gonna be one of those times when I wish that I had perfect recall. <laughs> but I remember like recently you know, because the response to a lot of these things when they happen, like over time, is like, let's establish a commission to study this particular department or this particular incident or this particular whatever, and then come up with some recommendations. Mm -hmm. And 
so I think in you know Obama era, there was some commission that was studying these things, and the person who wrote the report for that commission basically said, like, this the the findings of this commission could be the you know word for word the findings of the commission post the Watts you know riots um, post the you know the like all of these other kind of incidents throughout history for the past hundred years, there have been these commissions that have studied the things. And he's like, and basically every single one has said exactly the same thing and nothing has happened. Like nothing has changed. Nothing has been like commission after commission has found bias in the system, has found abuse of power, has found all of these things. And, but that it ends with that. It ends with like the publication of this finding and then nothing it, is done right. to change it. And so that, that would be my response to like the system is responsive to reform. I'm like, I have seen zero evidence that the, I mean, maybe like right now, very, very recently um, forces outside of the system, you know, city governments are saying, we're not going to give you this much money anymore. <laughs> is that the system being responsive to reform? Uh, not exactly. No, that one blew my mind. I really, I thought that is quite a sentence. Uh, yeah. So, okay. But yes, the other one, what about participants, uh, you know, black cops, black judges, are we calling them racist when we say that the system is racist? Well, look, <laughs> the trick that I see in that argument is that the, the, the button that you're pushing is not wanting to call people racist. Mm -hmm. And that is, like, time and time again, like, that is the thing that, that makes people run away from something, is feeling like someone is personally calling them racist or calling a specific person racist. And I think phrasing the question in that way is meant to push that button so that we will have our kind of politeness response of like, I don't want to call anyone racist. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I'm going to cede that point to that person. So I'm just like identifying that I think is the like the trick that is in that question is trying to get people to, sh to get someone to shy away from not want and wanting to say to call a person a racist because that feels so personal yeah. and like such an attack. But I think that everyone within a racist system is harmed by that system. And I do think that there are ways in which even, even black people, even people of color can, I don't think they're being racist in that. I don't think they are being racist, but I think that they are moved by that system mm -hmm. in ways maybe to not, not speak speak up because they need to like protect themselves or protect their families. That's not being racist. That is the racist system pushing them into a place where they're doing something that is maybe not what they would want to be doing. Right. Um, and, and I would, I would direct you to the quote that I pulled oh, yeah. from Scott Woods, American author and poet while I agree with people who say no one is born racist, it remains a powerful system that we're immediately born into. 
It's like being born into air. You take it in as soon as you breathe. It's not a cold that you can get over. There is no anti-racist certification class. It's a set of socioeconomic traps and cultural values that are fired up every time we interact with the world. It is a thing you have to keep scooping out of the boat of your life to keep from drowning in it. Yeah, I I think that I, I just wanted to flag them. I think you handled them great, especially having them come out of left field. But if anybody listening, uh, you know, who might be, you know, this is under consideration for them and they think, oh, well, a racist system wouldn't be so ready to reform. I would really ask them to say, has the system been responsive to reform? And the time in the reforms that we have seen, hasn't it been because the city's on fire? You know what I mean? Like, and so is that responsiveness? Yeah, exactly. Kicking and screaming. And so. And with lawsuits all the way. And then to me, like the idea of individuals participating in a racist system and are they racist? It definitely pushes that button. But I'd say don't like, like flinch at that, you know, because in my mind, like, like you, you know, we would say that teaching a home economics class to just girls, right, is sexist, like that would be sexist curriculum. So if a woman is teaching that class, does that make her a sexist? Like, gotcha, 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 you know? And it's like, <laughs> no, we're not saying she's a sexist. We're saying that if you have a class that teaches home economics to only women, then it doesn't matter what the gender the teacher is. That's the sexist system taking place. Right. Yeah. Again, paraphrasing what Scott Wood said, it's in the air that you breathe. Yeah. Like you can't help taking it in. And I will say again, like, and it hurts everybody. It hurts everybody in that, in that system. They may not be aware of it. They may feel like, you know, someone might feel like, oh, I'm on the top and I'm benefiting from this. But it's still, it's hurting you too. Mm -hmm. All right. And so I wouldn't want anyone to listen to this podcast and then come away feeling that those are two solid arguments, you know. (laughs) Um, And then, so my last piece of advice I'd say, uh, or whatever thoughts for review, uh, is there's these amazing lists of demands. And I'm very caught up in the list of demands. And like, I don't know if I'm unique as a person in that regard but there is a you know like there is a part of me that thinks i hear all the time about my white experience and my experience as a man and like how different that is from everybody else right and so there's times where i'm like is everybody into the list of demands or is it just like a white man reaction you know (laughs) because it's so (laughs) tangible they say this list of demands is like constantly getting renovated and updated in accordance with the new horrors that befall Mm -hmm. us, you know, and uh, to sort of speak to, you know, as things get checked off, like, so Canada, Black Lives Matters Canada has my favorite list of demands, and they've got the items that have been accomplished are crossed off the list. And I'm just like, this is amazing. (laughs) So I highly recommend you... uh, you find some time to spend with Canada's uh, Black Lives Matters list of demands because it's nice to see. Um, and then it's astonishing to see the things that have not been crossed off, like an acknowledgement that the system is racist. And it's like, <laughs> hold on, you released all this like body camera footage, but you didn't 
acknowledge that the systems are like that seems like the easiest one like you could do that yeah and tweet <laughs> you tweet that out and get it off the list so anyways um i i think that it is of particular value to sit down and read through the list of demands and i think it's fine if if that speaks to you or if you're like well what do what are we supposed to do with all of these protests or these feelings or like what does reform look like there's a lot of competing ideas for reform but there's some really broad ones that are just like end the war on black people you know so i think like i don't know why my public policy white man side is a little like uh let's break that into action steps you know like for end the war on black people but in so many cases they have you know these lists of demands are breaking out action steps. So I'm going to just highlight a few here. This is uh, this one's from Pittsburgh. It's end no-knock warrants, right? So it's just, that's it. It's changed the law. Those are illegal now. Make collective bargaining with the police public. Okay, that's pretty easy. Um, this one, very exciting. Abolish the police uh, department in Seattle. This is from the Seattle um, group. And they're saying defund it entirely, including pensions, and end uh, operations with ICE, so Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, right? Right. Um, and then they have all these things that it's like, in, while you are disbanding the police department, like do, you know, while the police are being dismantled, a total ban on the use of force from police. Um, and they're going to be replaced, right? They replace the current criminal justice system with restorative transformative accountability programs that replace imprisonment. So just it's just awesome to see, like, they don't specify what those replacement plans would be, but I've come across examples of those. So it's a very exciting right. time to, like, reimagine what the system could look like. And for anybody who says, you know, the system doesn't need to be reinvented, I feel like on the fact that it has lost so much trust, if it ever had public trust, like it certainly has lost the public trust. And as upsetting as the footage of George Floyd's killing um, is, I think that like, you know, created, along with all of the other Breonna Taylor and um, Ahmed Avery and like all these other um, incidences, but the footage of the police cracking down on protesters, like, I think that, you know, people were out there in the first place. Mm -hmm. But, like, to some extent, that really opened everybody's eyes to, like, this system is not working. Like, this does not have the public trust. And so it has to be reimagined, you know? Um, yeah. So, I, so that's that. I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, the public trust is lost, and so you have to rebuild pretty significantly. Yeah. And I also think that there are a number of, you know how uh, sometimes we're like, we look for like the anchor point, like what are the anchor points yeah. where we can like, you know, anchor it, put in our hammer in our anchor, and then we can go up. And like looking for those anchor points, and I think that you will find m more than you think. Like, I, I think that a lot of people can find agreement about the police not being the appropriate people to show up for a variety of things that, like, you call 911 and that's, that's who comes. Like, they're not equipped to handle 
like people in mental health crises, they're not necessarily the best people to handle someone who's dealing with a, like a houselessness issue, like all of these different, th- or like directions to somewhere. You know what I mean? Like there's so many things that the, that the police end up doing because the rest of our like social kind of safety net isn't there. Mm-hmm. And I think there are plenty of police who would tell you they don't want that to be their job either yeah. because they know that they're not they're not the right person for that. They know that they don't have the right training for that. And I love as an educator, I love like all of the the calls for like not just like like retraining or like a, you know, 3-day workshop or something like that, but really thinking seriously about like about the public trust and how much time it is worth to us as a society investing in the education and training of someone um, in whom we put that much trust. I think there are a lot of people who, if they really thought about it, would be like, oh yeah, a person with a gun does not need to respond to that situation. Exactly. Actually, you don't need a person with a gun (laughs) to come and help get this squirrel out of my house. Yeah. There's someone else whose job that is. Yeah, and it feels so obvious, but it also seems like if you don't set a few buildings on fire, you know... It's not... No one's going to think about it. And I think the thing that is also really helpful to, to think about is because it can seem really huge, like all of these things, like defund the police, abolish the police. Um... But to remember that all of these are very local mm-hmm. decisions and processes, and it can feel o- overwhelming. But if you think like, well, what I would be talking about is the Santa Fe Police Department. Mm-hmm. That's my police department, and you know, and it's the mayor, and it's the city councilors, and these very, you know, this group of people that it's like, no, there I can. I can have a voice with the with those people. Like that's close enough that those people had better care what I think along with all the other people in the city and we can have it's it's just like not as hard as we might think it is for us to have a voice and to say like this is what we want and enough and if enough of us say to our mayors and to our city councilors like these people who are like so close to us this is what we want we want money spent on this this and this and not so much on that and we don't think we need this and like we all kind of can get together and make sure that we're looking around to see who's in the room right when those conversations are happening like making sure that the people most affected and you know, people whose experiences might be different from ours, making sure that those people are, that everyone is in the room to speak to what is best for them and to speak to their own experiences to make sure that, like, the new thing that we build works for everyone in our community of Santa Fe Mm -hmm. or of Richmond or, you know, wherever we are. That's so much more doable than I think we are aware that it is. Yeah. And then I would say, like, say 
Black Lives Matters and say defund the police. Because we kind of like defund the police is another incredible example of like word use that is so potent. It's almost like hard to believe how effective that is. And it hits them in the pocketbook. It puts everybody on pins and needles because money is like seems to be often feels like the only thing that people care about. And so if you can say we're coming for your money, that's going to get some attention. Yeah. Because that is how, in this country, that is how we indicate what we value. Exactly. What do we spend money on? Um, that was our sad episode. That's our sad episode. Black Lives Matter. Defund the police. Yes. Uh, good luck out there. <laughs> Thanks. Yes, to everyone. Good luck. Keep learning. Keep asking questions. Try not to... Try to do some work on your own before you go around asking African-Americans questions because yeah. <laughs> they're a little bit tired. They've been working pretty hard to live in this racist system that we have. And so we got to take some ownership. If this is our job, this is our mess, we got to fix it.